Hello, Typology Tribe. Ian Morgan Cron here, host of the show Typology, the podcast on which we explore the mystery of the human personality and the story of you. I'm here with my friend Anthony Skinner. Hey, Ian. Dude, we got a big one today. I'm so excited that we get to share this with everyone. Right. Set it up for folks, buddy. Yeah, so we have what's called the Typology Institute membership. And for our members, Mm -hmm. we do some special things for them every month. Uh, One of them, of course, is a monthly newsletter. And this isn't just any newsletter. I mean, this is great content that you are sharing with our membership. We also have monthly secret podcast that is only for our members. And then one of the really cool things that we do is at the end of that podcast, we give our listeners homework. And then once a month, we all get together in a town hall and we have Q&A, we have crosstalk. It's just like one of our favorite things that we do with Typology. It is, and this is, by the way, everything Anthony just said is only for Typology Institute members. So today we're gonna listen to a podcast. We want you to hear a sample podcast. This podcast only went out to Typology Institute members. It did not go out to our broader Typology podcast audience, right? And then when this was done, we actually had a show on which we met with the guy we're about to talk with yeah. uh, on the show. And uh, we were on a Zoom call. We have all these people on there and we have these cool live conversations with each other that are really, really fantastic. One so. of the awesome things too is we get to know names, histories, stories. Oh yeah. It's like a family. It's mm-hmm. like a cool community. So mm-hmm. it's a rich group of people. So I want to encourage you to join. It's 15 bucks a month. It is so well worth uh, your money and your time. Uh, Ian, let's talk about today's guest. Yeah, so uh, on this show, we had uh, a really great friend, uh, of mine. His name is Andrew Chapman. Mm-hmm. Andrew is a really brilliant psychotherapist, right? He's a licensed social worker. He also is a meditation teacher. Mm-hmm. He is such a, and in fact, Andrew ran a meditation retreat I was on. Yeah. Six, six or seven days long. We did five to seven hours of meditation a day. Jealous. Oh, dude, it was amazing. It sounds so overwhelming and and difficult. It was difficult, but it was life-changing. And and his teaching and leadership on it was amazing. So on this podcast, we just kind of go into like all the benefits of uh, a, a mindfulness practice of regular meditation and how it how it, it needs to be relate how it relates to the enneagram mm-hmm. right because as you know i've often talked about how a mindfulness meditation practice is critical for doing the transformative work that can be done using the enneagram that's so right. that's what this is all about and listen um you know so folks know if you want to after hearing this want to join the typology membership institute so you have access to secret podcasts like this one all you got to do is go to the typologyinstitute.com slash membership page and sign on up there you go without any further ado let's welcome andrew chap we're glad to have you here man awesome man thanks for having me i really appreciate you inviting me out yeah so so in the interest of transparency not only is andrew my meditation teacher he's also my therapist (laughs) all right cannot confirm or deny (laughs) (laughs) well i've just so appreciated your wisdom and the way that you've integrated mindfulness meditation into my personal work as a person in recovery uh, I would say, uh, am I right in saying that Wild Heart has a large recovery community that is part of it? 
Oh yeah. A big part of our community folks find us through the 12 step scene or are looking for kind of alternate perspectives on how to incorporate meditation into their daily lives, you know, through recovery or just people wandering off the street. But yeah, yeah, a big contingent is from, I'd say the recovery world for sure. Very cool. Yeah. It is wonderful. Wow. It is wonderful. You know, what's amazing, Anthony, What? before we jump into this with Andrew and I'm sure you'll, I'm I'm hoping you'll concur. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. This is a silent retreat. So you, you have a couple hours on the first night to, mm-hmm. you know, talk with people, but you know, that ain't much, right. When you're getting started and right. then you have six days wow. of no talking. Okay. And what's amazing is, is you get to day six and you start to talk. You have a little time on the night of night six, uh, and then you go back into silence. And then the next day after breakfast or lunch, you can begin talking again with people because you're leaving. It's amazing how intimate you become with people mm-hmm. in the silence. Mm-hmm. Like you actually feel like you've gotten to know them without saying a word. Mm-hmm. I love it's that. extraordinary. Has that been your experience? Oh yeah, it's very true. And you know, that's the thing about silent retreat is that um, a lot of these kind of insights or realizations, they come very experientially and viscerally, but hard to put to words. Mm-hmm. And one of those experiences is just how, connected you can feel to complete strangers Mm. you know over the course of a week without having said a word to them right i think it's just the vulnerability everyone gets into their heart and softens Mm -hmm. and there's kind of a sense of we're in this together this is an incredibly challenging thing we're going through all of this stuff but Mm -hmm. we haven't said a word about it and then Mm -hmm. when we start to talk it's almost like we can pick up in our more vulnerable moment you know together yeah, oh, that's fascinating. it is really great. So Anthony, I want to press you to go on this retreat, Ooh. September three to six. Yeah, this is the one that you were just talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So you, you, it's life changing. Uh, I love this. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to offline right. here. Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to put the screws in. Come on. Turn them on you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I love that. So Andrew, you're at Enneagram six with a seven wing. I am. Which we love. How were you introduced to the Enneagram? Through you, Ian. Ah, I mean, through our kind of pop culture too. Yeah. You know, I mean, to be honest, right? Like Instagram or, sure. you know, friend circles and um, being a six wing seven, I'm open and interested, but always skeptical of mm-hmm. personality typings. Right. Mm, yes. And so I'm like always a late adopter with these things and, but have a very curious mind. So I've always been interested in it. And then when you told me a little bit more about the history behind it, I became fascinated mm. uh, instantly because it has a tradition and a lineage to it. Right. And so that's, was kind of my in as I was like, Oh, well, let me learn about what this thing is about, where it comes from. Hmm. And then I started reading more about the um, different types and yeah, there's so much truth, <laughs> right. so much truth, <laughs> truth that hurts. Right. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And I love that it focuses on, you know, not just kind of gassing us up and flowering us up about, you know, these are your assets and your wonderful strengths, but mm-hmm. also like, your neurotic fears and insecurities and your, you know, because, um, I found that to be incredibly true for my type as a six and also just so helpful for understanding, like when I'm in my more unhealthy patterns and when I'm at my healthiest. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you introduced me to it and then I kind of took hold on its own. Yeah. It's interesting. Fours and sixes tend to be the two numbers that are most resistant 
That's so funny. My wife's a four and she is incredibly resistant to it. (laughs) And we were reading the book at night and I kid you not, I read the chapter on the six and I started reading the chapter on the four and I went over to her ear (laughs) as she was falling asleep. And I said, we're going to read the four together tomorrow night. (laughs) You're such a four. (laughs) That's awesome. She was like, all right, let's do it. And then what happened when she read the four? I mean, it's, I think it was really helpful for her that you are a four Mm -hmm. and writing from that perspective of like, I don't know, man, like maybe the terminal uniqueness that can come with being the romantic or the individual. Um, uh, And I think she really felt validated and was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is me. And um, I would understand, I see why it would be hard to cop to that. And um by the very nature, not wanting to be put into a box and then seeing those characteristics and being like, okay, yeah, this is me. And I could maybe learn some things about myself through this. Right. So fours tend to resist it because they like to believe there's no one else in the world quite like that. Okay. Yeah. Right. I can see that. Right. And the sixes resist and are skeptical for, I think, well, a couple of reasons. One is there's always kind of a buzz of anxiety happening with sixes and they, they tend to view the world initially skeptically and suspicious, particularly people who are authority figures uh, that could be your principal, your teacher, your boss, you know, or it could be an expert in a particular field. And when something's new, that's introduced, the six is a little bit like, well, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, at my live workshops, the number that is least represented most of the time is sixes. Huh. That's wow. interesting. Yeah. And part of it is, should I go? Should I not go? What is this Enneagram thing? I don't know. You know, yeah. whereas other types are like, you know, I'm all in. I want to learn this stuff. You know, right. sixes are just a little bit hesitant. Oh, I could see that. You know, it was really disarming reading um, the book from your personal narrative and your own kind of reluctance um, but your open-mindedness, right. Too, your reluctance to make this the end all be all you talked a lot about, like all models are useful, but none are complete. Right. Right. Um, so as a six reading it, right. Like that was really helpful. I'm like, yeah, I believe that to be true. A lot of things can be incredibly useful and I don't have to see them in their totality. I think that's a very six characteristic is some of the distrust I think sometimes comes from feeling like people are kind of proselytizing this complete absolute truth. Mm -hmm. Whereas my psyche is always saying like, how can you know everything, right? Mm -hmm. How can you, you know, what about this or what about that? That's the way that I think. I always think in terms of um, what are you leaving out? Mm -hmm. And because you approached it in this way of let's look at where the use is in it, it was completely disarming and it was interesting to me. Right. Mm. So I want everyone to know why I'm so excited about this episode. And we are going to follow this up with a town hall for our, you know, our subscription members, Yes, which is with Andrew, with Andrew. And we're going to film the two of us actually leading, or you're going to be leading uh, folks in a mindfulness practice. We're going to get our cushions out on the floor. I can't wait. It's going to be on YouTube and uh, people will be able to ask questions after a a brief sit together. Mm -hmm. And uh, here's why I'm excited about it. I don't know of any practice that's more important and more helpful for people who are students of the Enneagram than mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. The reason I say this, and I'll just give a, just a quick uh, overview of why 
the Enneagram teaches that all of us have an essence or what we might call an essential self. It's our true self, right? It's who we were uh, before the world got its hands on us. Mm-hmm. That the human personality is kind of a cover story, right? It's a, it's a collection of adaptive stratagems. It involves temperament and disposition as well. But it's what we came up with to protect our essential self, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so in that sense, we could call it a false self, but, uh, but I want people to be careful with that term because it's, it's, not a, it's not a criticism. It's not something, it's just how we cope. It's how we protect ourselves, right? Maybe we, more of a shadow self. Mm, no, There's a shadow dimension to the personality, yeah. but um, that's not what the false self is mm-hmm. in its entirety. Right, right, right. Okay. So part of the goal of the Enneagram is to help us learn our type, our personality style, our way of showing up for life, Mm -hmm. right? Knowing that this false self, this personality is something we tend to over-identify with. We tend to think, oh, this is who I am, right? And in so doing, we can begin to deconstruct it and to make contact again with our essential self, Mm -hmm. right? I think meditation is terribly important and we're gonna talk more in depth together about it because it it strengthens the attentional muscle in the mind Mm -hmm. so that we can um, develop an inner witness, a neutral inner witness that can observe the games of our personality Mm -hmm. with all of the stories it tells, with all of its, you know, repeating patterns that are now, that helped us as little people, protected us as little people, but now in many ways is very self-defeating. Yes. Right. And it's very difficult to, to be a self-observant person unless you have a practice that can help you um, naturally be able to step back and go, oh, there it goes again. There goes my six anxiety. There's my skepticism. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's my this. Well, you know, that has helped you in many ways in life, particularly when you're younger, but now it might prevent you from actually jumping into things, right? Uh, Or it may prevent you from being in relationships because you're overly suspicious, et cetera, right? Uh, And me as a four, you know, uh, I have, you know, things that helped me, parts of my personality helped me greatly as a little person, but now work against me as uh, an adult person. Does all this ring true to you? 100%. And I think you said it a lot better than I could have just talking about how mindfulness can help us to look at these patterns. Mm -hmm. And I really like what you're saying, because it's a paradox in a way, right? Like looking at our personality, but more impersonally. Mm hmm. Right. So like viewing our skeptical parts or our comparing mind, right. If envy is our uh, deadly sin, right. Or like looking at our um, expectations of the perfectionist that maybe create this reactive anger, but looking at it non-judgmentally and not taking it personally, understanding that these parts of our personalities were in my belief developed during a time and a place in our lives where Um, they were assets, you know, Mm -hmm. or at least they were kind of survival tools that we needed to just get by. Yes. That's the personality. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. And then, you know, the tradition I come from, we talk about like relative and ultimate self, like our relational self 
develops through a series of experiences as kids and growing up and our formative years. And this is where we develop our strategies for how we're going to be liked and admired and appreciated and all of these things. And they're not bad. We Mm -hmm. have that aspect of our personality, but they often get in our way. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, they're not who we are at our core, right? They're a part of our personality structure, Mm -hmm. but we don't always have to operate from that place. Right. So mindfulness helps us to have this neutral witness space that we can step back and observe these aspects of our personality. So we don't have to let our judging mind drive the car or our comparing mind drive the car, Mm -hmm. right? Or for me, my like incessant fear and skeptical doubt (laughs) drive the car (laughs) because they do hold us back. And so we can step back, observe, get a little bit of space um, and have more attention and intention in how we, you know, move through the world. Right. So if you're a one, Anthony mm-hmm. and Andrew, you might begin to self-observe with compassion. This is very important, mm-hmm. right? What I might call the compassionate gaze. I'm not sure if that's a term that's used elsewhere, but, um, oh, I'm in perfectionist mode right now. Mm-hmm. I'm being overly critical, overly judgmental and not beat yourself up for that, but just to compassionately observe. Oh, mm-hmm. there I go again. And begin to make different choices about what you're going to do rather than being held hostage by that repetitive pattern. Right. It gives you options. Options. Yeah. Right. So if you're a two, you begin to realize, oh, I'm starting to act real co- codependently here. Mm-hmm. I'm actually meeting the needs of others, not because I want to, but because I'm afraid that if I don't, I'll lose their love and approval mm-hmm. and relationship and they won't like me, mm-hmm. essentially. Three might say, oh, I'm into achieving mode again. I'm overworking and uh, I'm beginning to believe right now that I am what I do rather than uh, I am uh, lovable mm-hmm. and valuable apart from anything I do just simply for who I am. Mm-hmm. Right. And I can go through all the time. Should I? Yeah. All right. So if you're a four and you, you have a really good mindfulness practice, you've developed this inner witness, mm-hmm. right? This neutral, I don't know if disinterested is the right word, but just able to step back and you might observe, uh-oh, I'm acting like I, I need, I'm, I'm acting special and unique right now in order to feel like I fit in or mm-hmm. like as a compensatory behavior. Mm-hmm. That will hopefully get people to uh, accept me and mm-hmm. to see me, mm-hmm. to see me at the deepest level of personhood. The five might realize, okay, I'm on an information gathering quest right now. That's out of control. I'm trying to, and then, okay, I need to step back and maybe engage my heart more. Mm-hmm. Six might, well, you've already covered sixes. Sevens might say, you know, right now I am kind of manic and I am too future minded mm-hmm. right now. And I'm not very present in this moment. Uh, and in fact, I'm now believing in this moment that the next moment contains the happiness I really want. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And to say, mm, I need to make a different choice right now. Yeah. The eight may say I'm being too aggressive. Uh, I'm hiding the, my vulnerability and my tenderness. And I'm, I'm kind of blowing through relationships and, and hurting people, you know, with my aggression and say, well, I'm. Y'all hear that? There's my eighth dog in the background. Hey, you guys, stop. God bless him. I love my dogs. One is a five and the other one is a total nine. Anyway, um, so uh, 
you know, in the nine, finally, right, might say, I'm not asserting myself. I'm kind of mm-hmm. being wallpaper right now. Uh, I'm avoiding conflict. Mm-hmm. And see, and when you develop the inner witness as a result of a regular meditation practice, right. yeah. you're able to spot that stuff mm-hmm. and go, you know, that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. That's just how I behave. I thought right. it's who I am. I love that. But I want to find my true self. And in order to do that, I need a mindfulness practice that will help me self-observe and begin to gently deconstruct the personality so that my essential self might emerge freely. Well said. Well said. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, that's, and that's what's done for me. Mm-hmm. That's what it's done for me. Yeah. And Andrew has helped for me in that journey. Mikey has helped me in that journey. And I could, you know, give a long list of other sure. teachers I've read and, and uh, have really, really helped me along life's way. Now we might have some listeners right now and they're thinking, okay, this is a little woo woo. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like this is just a little out there for me. And oh my gosh, Ian's got a Buddhist in the house and who knows what that is. You know, know, the six is maybe going a Buddhist, you know, whatever. (laughs) And and so here, let's just talk about this for a second. There's a lot of science behind mindfulness, Mm -hmm. right? I think about the research being done at Stanford at university of Massachusetts, Amherst and other places. Talk to me, talk to folks just a little bit, because I know you do corporate work where the religious or the spiritual side of this is not necessarily a welcome integrated piece. What's the science behind mindfulness? Sure. Well, I think you said it best. I think in our culture, we view something like meditation as explicitly connected to spirituality. Mm -hmm. But meditation is, in this sense, mindfulness is an attentional training practice, right? Mm -hmm. And so whatever we're doing in any moment of conscious awareness throughout the day, our attention is always somewhere. Mm-hmm. But we're not always aware of where our attention is. Right. A lot of times our attention is in our thoughts, mm-hmm. you know, caught up in the future, uh, which generates a lot of anxiety or caught up in the past and regret or nostalgia, feeling like we're lacking something. Right. right? So mindfulness is fundamentally a science of attention training. Mm-hmm. And That's it's a good. core cognitive skill and ability that all of us possess. All right, Andrew, a lot of people are probably listening right now and they're going, OK, this is a little woo woo for me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're thinking this sounds meditation just sounds like maybe a religious, spiritual kind of practice. And the sixes are going Buddhist. Why are there Buddhists in the room? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, There's a real science behind mindfulness, separate from any spiritual tradition. It's well documented. Talk to people a little bit just about the science of mindfulness. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, just like you said, a lot of times when we think of meditation, we kind of explicitly connect it or link it with a specific spiritual religious tradition, most commonly Buddhism, because that's where the lineage comes from. That's kind of where the oldest recordings of where it arose from. But the reality is, is that it is a science of attention training. It's not anything, there's nothing uniquely Buddhist or Christian or uh, Muslim or, you know, any, anything about it. It's a core attentional skill that all of us have. And it's not an experience, you know, Mm -hmm. meditation is not to sit and to have, at least in the form of mindfulness, some, special mystical kind of experience it's a training practice of finding your attention wherever it's wandering off most of the time for us it's in our thought world you know a lot of the time i think i've heard it said you have between 50 to seventy thousand discrete thoughts in a day yeah. mm. um, there's a famous study by gilbert and killingsworth two harvard psychologists that found that when your attention does wander into these 50 to seventy thousand thoughts it's mostly dragged into worry and remorse and guilt and regret our stressors 
they call it the negative attention bias, right? Mm -hmm. Our brains are kind of wired to perceive threat, to prepare for it, to try to annihilate it or get rid of it. So this is the day-to-day uh, -day life of being lost in thought. And what mindfulness is, there's nothing uniquely spiritual or religious about it. It's just an ability to pause, to recognize what your attention's doing in the moment, to bring it back to the here and now, mm -hmm. and to restart, mm -hmm. to come back into the body, to take a breath, to soften around the emotions that are, you know, contracting and pulling us into these narratives in our mm -hmm. mind. It's just a moment to recognize <clears throat> when we're lost and to come back. And yeah, there's tons of research being done. It's still in its infancy, but so is all of brain science, you know? Mm -hmm. So probably the last 20, 30 years, they've been getting people in MRI scanners, you know, mm. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn brought this to the secular world. He teaches uh, evidence-based form of mindfulness called mindfulness-based stress reduction. Right. Right. Now there's mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. It's finding its way into the therapeutic world. It's helping people with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. um, as Anthony was saying earlier, there are athletes that are training and practicing in mindfulness because it helps them to be more in that flow state. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're playing a sport and you're playing tennis and, you know, you whiff the ball and then you're so caught up on that last mistake, that's mm -hmm. right. You know, that you can't be in the present moment for that next uh, point. Mm -hmm. And we so often do this in other areas of our lives too. And so we find this in athletics, we find it in, um, you know, the corporate world, even we find it in all these different avenues of life. And, you know, the research is showing there's nothing special or magical about this. This is something you can do. You can do it now. We've been doing it anyway, but you can train it. You can practice it. Mm. So how do you do it? And I know we're going to talk about this yeah. on the town hall, which is just for our subscription members. Right. But for folks on the podcast, like just how do you do? Because, because here's my experience of yeah. mindfulness. It's so easy. We make it hard. Yeah, mm. that's right. hundred percent. And as a uh, talker, right. And like, I'm always speaking as a loyalist to the people in the room that are going to have doubts. Right. So mm -hmm. I like to build a case. I'm right. a big case builder. So here's my case. The first thing, and I want to come back to the question, how do you do it? But the first important thing is to talk about some of the myths and misconceptions. We already talked about one, okay. which is that it doesn't require any belief. It's not a belief centric mm -hmm. thing. It doesn't require you to change your, you know, um, worldview, uh, at least at first, maybe you will after you practice it a little bit, right. <laughs> that's a benefit of it. But it's so it's not a, a experience. It's a practice. We right. kind of debunked that okay. it's a training. It's not an experience. So don't be sitting there waiting for something to happen. Like, am I doing it right? And no, part of what we're working with is the fact that the mind wanders and that the body aches and that there are sounds that are coming and going and we have no control over our external world ultimately. So we have to kind of learn to train ourselves to be more present and more non-judgmental in being aware of whatever's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's a training. The second myth that is really important to debunk is that a lot of times people think that meditation is about clearing the mind. Number one misconception about mindfulness is how do I get this thing to stop? How do I get my mind to stop wandering? The goal of mindfulness is not to stop thinking. It's to recognize and acknowledge when your attention's wrapped up in your thoughts and to bring it back to something, like you said, very simple and rudimentary that's happening in the here and now, like mm -hmm. your breath, the weight of your body, the sounds that mm -hmm. are occurring in the present moment, to let the thoughts fall into the background 
and bring another part of your direct experience to the foreground, your breath, your body sounds really simple, right? But hard to do because the mind wanders a lot. So when your attention wanders off, you recognize it, you relax, you return and you refocus on your breath. I call those the four R's. And that's what we'll talk about, about how to do it. The third misconception is that a lot of times people think meditation should be relaxing. Mm-hmm. And then this is a little bit of a misnomer because in a way it is, and in a way it isn't. I'll try to explain this. It's a little bit of a paradox. So mindfulness is not about relaxation in the sense of you're not necessarily going to have a pleasant experience. I can assure you. Yes, that's true. (laughs) Hence the wet shoes and the dryer tumbling around, right? Yeah. It's not about feeling good. Mm -hmm. It's about experiencing what you're feeling with equanimity. You actually Mm -hmm. talk about equanimity related to the nine in the book, right? Uh, The four. The four. Okay. And equanimity is this ability to be with whatever you're experiencing Mm -hmm. in a relaxed way. But Mm -hmm. that means even if it's not relaxing. So if my mind is restless and there's a lot of pain in my body, I'm not going to make that go away by meditating. But what I can do is soften my resistance and reaction to the discomfort that I feel. Mm-hmm. And we call this the second arrow, right? Your reactivity towards what you're experiencing is what we're really working on. Trying to soften, be non-judgmental, you know, be with the experience as it is. That's a practice mm-hmm. in science. They call this distress tolerance and they know that we can build our window of tolerance. And they know that that comes from sitting with mm-hmm. what we're experiencing. The root word for um, the etymology of the word courage It means of the heart, but it actually means the seat of feeling. So it means the ability to sit with what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And that's That's the type of relaxation we're developing during meditation is this equanimity, this ability to sit with what we're feeling, to soften our resistance around it and to let it be right. I always think of that Paul McCartney, right? Let it be, let it be. That's a big mindfulness practice. So those are three myths. It's not an experience. It's a practice. It's not about clearing the mind. It's about observing your thoughts, feelings, and emotions non-judgmentally. When you get tangled up in your mind, come back to the present. And it's not about being in this pleasant, blissful state. It's about trying to relax with what is. Now that's the mechanics, right? Right. And I told you, I over-explained to whoever are the reluctant yogis in the room, right? (laughs) Because that's me. (laughs) So how do you practice it? Real simple. You find an anchor or a home base for your attention, something that's not your thinking mind. Your breath will work. Doesn't matter where, your breath at your nostrils, your chest, the rise and fall of your abdomen, doesn't matter. Anywhere where you notice your breath coming and going most easily will work. Mm. Some people don't like to focus on their breath. So they do, uh, they widen their awareness into sounds and you just listen to whatever sounds are arising Mm. and passing. Mm -hmm. Or you can focus, my favorite is on the weight of your body. I focus a lot on the weight of my hands, the weight of my butt in the chair, my feet on the floor. So we call this your anchor or your home base. Mm -hmm. Now, just like if you're going fishing on a windy day, if your mind is windy that day, your boat's still going to move around the anchor a little bit. Your mind's going to wander a little bit. Your attention's going to go off. That's normal. That's to be expected. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, when your mind wanders from your anchor, you just recognize it. You acknowledge it. You can even use a silent note or label like Mm -hmm. thinking Mm -hmm. or wandering. Some people like noting, some people don't. Recognize when your attention wanders off, relax, 
with a kind, non-judgmental awareness. Okay, this is happening. Return your attention back to your anchor, your breath, body, sounds, and refocus. So I call them the four R's. Recognize, relax, return, refocus. Simple. Not easy. Yeah. <laughs> so just going back to my experience on this retreat, right? Five to seven hours a day of, of meditation. Um, which of course was difficult, but it's amazing how you can fall into the kind of the groove of it after a while. Right. But very, very challenging. Um, and I, I would say that like the brain to borrow the words of someone else secretes thoughts, the way that your thyroid, you know, secretes, whatever that does, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. so it's, it, you know, there, um, to not be angry with your mind. Like, oh, God, more thoughts. It's like, well, good luck. They're not going away. The question is, how do you regard them? What is your posture mm-hmm. towards them, mm-hmm. right? And um, so now some people may be thinking, okay, could you remind me of what this has to do with the Enneagram, <laughs> right? And here's what I'm going to say. I, as a four, have repeating patterns of acting, thinking, and feeling that work not in my best interest mm-hmm. much of the time. Mm-hmm. And when I have a mindfulness, regular mindfulness practice, which is not always, but when I have some consistency, what I discover is that my, my focus of attention and my ability to recognize in my somatically in my body, when envy comes up, anger comes up, sadness comes up, mm. whatever it may be, or thoughts start to run that are like, gosh, you know, I've been running since for 40 years. You know, uh, I'm able now with love and kindness to step back and say, oh, sadness. I don't try and push it away. I don't cling to it as though it's my identity. And this is, you know, the fullness of reality. I'm able to go just a thought, Mm -hmm. recognizing that all thoughts are impermanent Mm -hmm. and also being able to say in the moment, ah, there's my fourness. Yes. Right. Or there's my oneness, my perfectionism, or there goes my codependency as a two, or there goes my being overly cerebral and locked in my head for a five, et cetera. Yes. Right. And it has helped me more than any other spiritual practice. Twinned with the Enneagram, because otherwise the Enneagram is just a description of a personality type. Right. It's not enough. Yeah. How do you begin? This is what meditation does for me to become self-aware, self-knowledgeable, and then also self-compassionate, to recognize that these patterns arose in childhood with good intentions. Yeah. And, and, but now don't work for me, right? And, and so with that attention now, I can begin to loosen the grip of their influence and make new choices. So I know I'm repeating myself a little bit, but I don't want it's our good. listeners mm-hmm. to start going, okay, what's this guy doing the Enneagram again? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. No, it's good. Anthony, you have a meditation practice, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How has it helped you as in turn, oh, like man. through the lens of the Enneagram? Um, well, I think one of the first things that really helped me do was separate myself from my feelings. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. my feelings. That one was a big one because I so over identify with what I was feeling. I, I thought as a four, yeah, as a four speaking as a four that it was who I am. And you've said this a lot over the years, like uh, you are the mountain, not the weather system. Right. And so I think that's like the kind of thing that it did for me. Um, and um, 
helped me be a lot more compassionate with myself as a four, you know, you struggle with shame and shaming yourself. Mm. And it helped me be, have that, that, uh, objective observer, that perch to look at, you know, where I was and what I was doing to myself, where the strategy wasn't helping me and, uh, be more compassionate. And I, I love the, the terminology you're using to soften, like soften around the emotion, softening around these, the strategy and being able to let go. And I think that's what it did for me. It helped me, um, let go and then, um, really find out, you know, and finding out who I am and, and that I'm not that now I had, like I said to you, it gives me options in terms of who, who am I and what am I doing today? You know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So um, just for our people who are listening, who self-identify as Christians, mm-hmm. right. And, you know, uh, Andrew's a Buddhist and, mm-hmm. and we've already discussed the fact that apart from any religious tradition, mm-hmm. there's a lot of scientific research right. around um, mindfulness based right? Uh, Meditation, if you will, uh, to support its efficacy. Then there's also, you know, thousands of years of Buddhist meditation and and revealing the same thing that science now is uh, coming to understand. But for Christians, listen to this. There is a long history of meditation in the tradition, right? Absolutely. Going back to the desert mothers and fathers of 1700 Mm -hmm. years ago. And I would encourage folks to read, for example, uh, the Catholic priests and scholar, Father Martin Laird, L-A-I-R-D, wrote a beautiful book. You would love it too, Andrew. It's called Into the Silent Land. Mm. Isn't that a great title? It's a great title. Yeah. And and then he has a, so that's a wonderful book on Mm -hmm. on meditation through a Christian lens. Mm -hmm. And of course, Father Thomas Keating, Mm K-E-A-T-I-N-G, who Mm -hmm. is are you familiar with Thomas Keating at all? A little bit. I haven't read any of it. Right. So he is another Catholic. He's a Catholic monk uh, who ha- was the pioneer of centering prayer, which is essentially Buddhist. It, oh, I, I want to say it, it is the analog through the, in the Christian tradition. So the, what it is, is let's say on the inhalation, you might say mercy on the exhalation. Mm-hmm. You might say peace, mm-hmm. right? You pick sort of a, he would call it a sacred word that becomes the focus of attention. And when your mind wanders from it, you bring it back. It's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same as what we're discussing right now. Yeah. I would say too, um, I think, you know, Christianity is an Eastern religion and I think the med- Ooh, meditation was so near Eastern to be specific. <laughs> I think meditation was so, such a common part of their practice. It's not explained a lot in the scriptures, but there's it's referenced constantly. Yes. And I was just actually was just reading this yesterday. There's a Psalm of David where he says, my heart is ever before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. And uh, there's all kinds of things you can unpack there with the sighing uh, and with the heart. Um, but you, 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 if you, I, there's no way that you can, have your sign be before someone unless you identify, you know, with what that is and it's, which is sadness. Um, and you're, you know, sharing it with someone or something. Right. Um, so anyway, I just, it's, it's something that I think is actually essential to even Christianity, but it's just something we don't know about and don't talk about. Right. Yeah. I prefer to look at meditation traditions as just the way of our elders, whatever mm. lineages, whatever traditions, whatever spiritual, because every spiritual religious tradition, maybe I shouldn't say every, but 
all the ones that I know of have some type of contemplative lineage. In Christianity, you have the desert monks, right? You have the Trappist monks. I don't know a lot about this stuff, but mm-hmm. right. There's a contemplative tradition there oh, yeah. that started somewhere way long ago. Our mm-hmm. elders, you know, picked it up and found it as a way to deepen their faith. Buddhism's the same. Sufism, you have the Sufi dancing, you know, Indian culture, the Ayurvedic world, you have yoga and asana. They're always contemplative, practical ways of connecting to your lineage and tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I feel like it's just uh, wisdom that's passed down and whatever our way of viewing our faith in the world it. I think we'll find a lot more similarities and differences in the ways that contemplative traditions have practiced these things yeah. over time. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I've noted in the Christian tradition, that one of the greatest uh, inhibitors of growth is anxiety. And I say that because there are people in that space who are resistant mm-hmm. or even censoring of finding truth in all places, right? As you just described. And I was just reminding people of the words of Martin Luther, that wherever, and this is what he said, wherever we find truth, we should avail ourselves of it. I love that phrase. We should avail ourselves of it. So regardless if it's in the Buddhist tradition, if it's from science, if it's from, you know what I mean? Wherever it is, if it's true, then we should avail ourselves of it. Right. And not be afraid of it. Right. So, again, that's just a word of encouragement to people who are just tend to be like, oh, that's outside the tradition. I can't touch it. It's like, no, actually, that's actually a lack of confidence in your own critical thinking. Mm. Right. It's like, well, be a critical thinker. Take what you want. Leave the rest, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, from learning from other people, other traditions. And uh, I have found that to be tremendously helpful in in my own life. You know, like I read people all the time. I'm like, I disagree with 80 percent. But man, I'm really glad I read it for that 20% because mm-hmm. the 20% is brilliant. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some people are like, they just want to read or encounter things that massage their pre-existing biases. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very unhelpful way to move through the world. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you end up in what's called an epistemic cocoon, a truth cocoon, right? Where you can't see anything or you refuse to see anything outside of it. Wow. Right. I got to use the word epistemic today. Are you proud of me? <laughs> I like it. Five points on the board. Five <laughs> on the right. board. Okay, question for you. Yeah, Peter. sure. All right, so you're a new student at the Enneagram. Yes. Right, and so I don't, I want to put you too hot on the spot. Sure. But as you think about the Enneagram, how would meditation be particularly helpful for people who are, who want to be, who want to know more than just their type and a description of it? They're like, okay, but I really want to work to grow into the highest expression of who I am? Like, how would that help them? Yeah, so I've actually thought about this a lot today because this is what really got me excited about coming to talk is about how you describe how these personality types can incline themselves in healthier ways or unhealthier ways. And for me, just personally, I feel like in my very preliminary knowledge of the Enneagram, the thing that drives my lack of healthiness or my healthiness is oftentimes this kind of core emotion that plagues my type, right? For Mm -hmm. me, it's fear. So how mindfulness helps is to, you know, first, it's important to say there's a difference between non-judgment and discernment, Mm -hmm. right? So like you said earlier, one of the pleasures of reading the books 
for me and hearing your other listeners on the podcast is how much of a sense of humor people have about their flaws. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's what we mean by Mm non-judgment. It's like, Oh, there it is again, right? There's my neurotic (laughs) insecure part, right. Of this personality type. Right. And so that's what we mean by non-judgment, but what mindfulness can help us to do is to have discernment to actually be curious about, just like you said earlier, when these parts, mostly for me, it's emotional, you know, my fear part and the narrative that comes with it Mm -hmm. about how untrustworthy the world is and how inaccurate everybody is Mm -hmm. all the time (laughs) to pause and to be aware that that's coming up and being able to step back from it and to choose a different response. Mm -hmm. Viktor Frankl has a really great quote about this. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. In it, he kind of talks about mindfulness in a way, at least I think he does. And he says, Between a stimulus and a response, there's a space. In that space lies the power to choose your response. In your choice lies your Mm. growth and freedom. Mm. So right there, we can see where mindfulness enables us to step back and give us the space between what the fear is telling us about the world, the narrative of distrust and, um, you know, this person's trying to pull one over on me and my insecurity and all of this stuff. We can pause in those moments and to get enough space to notice the feeling mm-hmm. so we don't have to act on it. And what that does is I feel like it propels me towards a healthier version of myself. Mm-hmm. And then we see that these things that were liabilities when I'm acting unhealthily actually mm-hmm. are my greatest assets. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a great ability to brainstorm with people and to look at all sides of the coin. Wow. You know, I have a great ability to pull people together. And because I see the differences, because I have a discriminating mind, mm-hmm. I can see when I'm in my healthiest self, uh, parts of the puzzle that might fit together well, wow. you know, and so mindfulness helps us to kind of turn what seems like our the liabilities of our character type, our personality type into um, assets and Mm. and to strengthen them, Mm -hmm. you know, so now I'm more discerning, um, but more trusting instead Mm. of fearful and distrusting, Mm -hmm. right. Instead of just believing the narrative of my mind, I can pause and respond differently. And one thing I want to say is real quick, going back to something you said earlier, I think is really important is if people are confused about, well, what is this mindfulness thing? Like, this is something new. You do it all of the time. Hmm. If you listen to this podcast and you think, huh, that's really interesting that, you know, Ian said something about my personality type. And then you're talking to a friend later and you recognize it and you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, there it is. That thing he talked about. That's a moment of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. It's a moment of present time recognition of your pattern, your type coming up in the moment. That's Mm. all mindfulness is, is Mm. stepping back and observing what's happening. Mm -hmm. That's it. So we do it all the time. And I think that really increases the kind of health and assets of our personality types. Okay. This is so great what you just said. Yeah. Right. Um, I love that Victor Frankl quote. I think that, um, yes, we do it all the time. What mindfulness does is it, it puts the, the, force of intentionality behind it and strengthens our ability to do it, sharpens it, um, and also helps us know what to do with it when it happens, which is to be compassionate, neutral, Mm -hmm. curious, all those things. And in that moment, see, when you're in reactivity, you're locked in the trance of your type. You're locked in the story of your type, right? And it's just spinning. and, And you are just kind of you know, going with it, unaware that it's running the show. It's at the wheel, 
right? But when you are moving into responsiveness, you're able to say, oh, there it goes. And I love what you said about the sense of humor. I've mm-hmm. done that myself. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I'm at a friend's house, right? What comes, you know, beautiful house. And I go, oh, what if? <laughs> What if I'd gone to Harvard? What if I lived in a house this big? Wouldn't I be more loved? Wouldn't people see me finally? And then I feel that coming up Mm -hmm. and I feel myself telling that story. And because you have a practice, it's maybe a little bit sharper, the awareness in the moment. And then I'm able to go now look, right? Or you know what, by the way, can I just say something about your, the co-director Mikey Noshul? Sure, yeah. When we were on retreat, Mikey has this thing he does where, you know, and by the way, when you see Mike, you know, covered in tattoos, a lot of ink, uh-huh. you know, he looks like a rough kind of like bikey kind of guy, right? Uh-huh. But he's a very tender, kind soul, mm-hmm. right? And when someone tells him something that they're going through, I've seen him do this in a group, when mm-hmm. someone shares deeply about some pain, he goes like this, aw, aw. And there's just something about the way he goes, aw, that I go like, my radar goes up because I'm like, wow, I really believe that empathy. Mm. I really believe that mm. compassion. Like the, this, this guy's not faking this. Mm-hmm. It's legit, right? Yeah. And one of the things I've learned when now back to the story, all these what ifs come up and all this stuff is to turn toward them and say, oh, yeah, it's just. And to turn toward yourself. That's you, what I mean. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. turn toward yourself and go, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and then make new choices, respond mm-hmm. versus react, mm-hmm. right? Like in the moment, say, okay, I'm not going to start name dropping here to kind of get seen, or I'm not going to do the, you know, because I know the patterns, I know what I'm going to start doing. And it's like, I just live with more conscious awareness. Yes. Yeah. And I would say that our, the more protective aspects of our Enneagram types, in my experience, when we try to view them through a lens of judgment or harshness or criticism, which we don't mean to do. It's kind of like habituated, but when we do, they get stronger, right? The wall goes up bigger. You know, I always like to say, you can't hate yourself into being a better person, right? Mm. Y'all hear that? Good. Yeah. You cannot hate yourself into being a better person. Okay. That's worth the whole fight. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt. Go on. So when you, when I notice my neurotic fear and skepticism and doubt, you know, no amount of acknowledging that with criticism or judgment or saying, God, I'm Mm. such a bad person. You know, I'm, why, why do I do this? I'm, you know, no, no one's going to want to be around me. Right. Mm -hmm. When I get in this kind of self-deprecating space, those tendencies of the fear and doubt and distrust actually grow stronger, you know, because what for me happens is if I view myself negatively as a result of my shortcomings, I isolate myself more from being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And the more I isolate myself from being vulnerable, the more my shortcomings come out, Mm -hmm. the more skeptical and distrustful distrusting I am. Mm -hmm. So they kind of tend to perpetuate themselves. And the same is true when we're compassion, when we have that, oh, you know, that kind of acknowledgement of uh, compassion towards a shortcoming that's coming up. Mm -hmm. There's a softening and a disarming of the tendency. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like we're really willing to look at it. And when we're looking through the lens of judgment, we're not yet willing to look at 
we're not yet really mm. willing to be honest about what's going on because mm -hmm. we're trying to get rid of something instead of trying to listen to it. Mm -hmm. So we want to look when these things come up and just kind of listen to them. You know, Tara Brock has a great uh, teaching on RAIN. It's an acronym, recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. Mm -hmm. Simple, right? Recognize when it comes up. Allow it means have compassion, say, oh, you know, it's okay. Have a sense of humor, maybe even. Then we can investigate and really look at what's going on and um, nurture a new response. Because mm -hmm. like the other that. thing is, is when we, just like you said, when we recognize it and we're able to step back and not go into the, <clears throat> you know, shame, blame, or praise, blame, you know, whatever right. tendency we want to follow. Um, we give ourselves a choice to do something different and not to deal with these secondary emotions that when we act on our shortcomings, like the regret or the, you know, guilt, the remorse, mm -hmm. you know, cause then I end up when I'm not aware of my shortcomings, um, people for me always feel like I don't trust them. Mm. So people, they don't tend to feel that I micromanage them, but they feel like you're never going to really give me the reins, right? Mm. Because mm. you're so skeptical and you're always asking me questions. And for me, I'm just like, no, I'm helping to problem solve. But for mm -hmm. them, they're like, you don't trust me. And right. so when I continue acting in that way, you know, badgering them with questions, then it just reinforces that, uh, secondary emotion of regret. Then I walk away and I'm like, man, why was that person shut down? You know, mm -hmm. why doesn't this person call and want to like ask for my opinion? You know, why mm -hmm. don't they come to me? Mm -hmm. Well, if they come to me, I'm going to badger them with questions. That's not fun. Right. Right. So it both helps me to be more compassionate when these things come up, but also to disengage from the habits that, um, you know, bury me deeper and deeper down into the, the shortcomings. Right. And as a six, you just described the whole six experience right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. in such a, in such a beautiful, uh, beautiful way. Anthony, I want to close with the story and yeah. you know, this story well, but I think it'll maybe hopefully put a, a nice period at the end of the sentence. So there's a, uh, this, you know, the story Anthony, about the Buddhist, the statue of the Buddha, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. This gigantic Buddha that uh, was covered in clay. Was that in Burma or someplace like that? Do you know the story? I'm I not think, sure. Yeah, yeah. You'll know when I get into it. Uh, and um, the monks in this uh, monastery, you know, this is not a very attractive, you know, it was just clay, like terracotta or something. And uh, they were told by the local authorities that they were going to build a highway right through the monastery, right? So they had to relocate. And that meant relocating this like 18 foot terracotta Buddha, mm -hmm. right? As they were moving it, they, uh, it dropped, right? It, it was a, I don't know, some sort of mishap on the field there. And uh, it cracked. And one of the monks noticed when they looked into the crack that there was this gold gleaming inside. Ran to get a bunch of the other monks. They begin to chip away at it. And of course, what's underneath it, right, is like a 12-foot solid gold statue of the Buddha, right? Now, and by the way, which you can now see, I think it's in Thailand, which you can now see, right? And to me, this is so much, it's a wonderful story about the Enneagram. Mm. Your personality is like this terracotta thing. Mm. Uh, it can be beautiful mm. and it can be very problematic because 
what happens is as a little person, as your personality develops, you lose touch with that gold essence inside. Mm -hmm. It gets wrapped underneath personality. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And what the Enneagram does is, you know, it just kind of points out, describes what that personality is. And through practices like meditation, it's like chipping away at the personality Mm. so that what emerges is this essential self with all of its original goodness and its its original um, beauty. Um, You know, and and so for me, that's a lot of the, the spiritual journey is the recovery of the true self. And that's mm-hmm. Thomas Merton. It's countless mm-hmm. other spiritual traditions. How do I find the true self? Mm-hmm. For me, a regular practice of mindfulness meditation is the best tool I have for chipping away mm-hmm. at the terracotta that covers over that essential self mm-hmm. and helps me to find the true self. That's rather than living in the false self yeah. trance yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. What do you, does that sound? I love it. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, so anyway, I want to tell everybody again, please mm. check out the Wild Heart Meditation podcast. Remember, it is in the Buddhist tradition, but avail yourself of truth wherever you find it. Right. Take what you need. Leave the rest. <laughs> right. You will come away with some really, really great stuff. Mm. I want you to go and uh, check out wildheartmeditationcenter.org. If you live in Nashville, You can actually come to the Wild Heart Meditation Center out on Gallatin Pike in East Nashville. You have a number of, just tell us what what goes on there. Currently, after COVID, we have two main groups at the moment. We're going to add a bunch more. Um, But right now, we have Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Myself and the co-director, Rachel Tanner-Smith, lead that group together. And then Wednesday night, Mikey, who you mentioned, Mikey Noshal, leads the uh, group from 7 p.m. to 8.30 every Wednesday. And then we have recovery groups that are coming back in July. We have a BIPOC group for people of color that want an affinity group and a space to come and meditate together. We're going to start an LGBTQIA plus group coming (laughs) in lots of letters coming up in um, probably August. So tons of just different programming um, for uh, anyone that wants to come. It's completely nonprofit. You don't have to pay anything to come. If you can donate, it helps our cause, but there's no fee. There's no set fee for anything. So use it. It's a public resource. If you're interested, there's no commitment from you to us, just us to you. We're going to be there and be open and you can come and go as you please. Mm -hmm. And don't forget if you're at all interested, the September 3rd to 6th, uh, retreat in Hendersonville, North Carolina. If you just go to wildheartmeditationcenter.org, uh, I think it's probably on the homepage that it's that it's coming up and how can you sign up and be part of it. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Anthony. Mm, Great such to a meet privilege you. to have you here. Thanks. Yeah. Don't, don't forget subscription members. Uh, Andrew's going to be back with us and we're actually going to do a meditation sit together and kind of maybe dive a little bit deeper in, into how mindfulness can help you do your Enneagram work and you get to actually interact with us live and ask questions and be in conversation with us, which is, I love. That's going to be super fun. Our town halls, yeah. right? Because Can't wait for those that. subscription members, right, uh, are able to uh, jump in and actually, you know, be live and up close with us, which, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just on a podcast, us being talking heads, we get to be in conversation. Anthony. Yes, sir. It's always good to be with you, my friend. Good to be with you. And we'll be good to be with you all next week in Wyoming. That's right. And 
I'm going to close with these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time.